You're listening to Treating Blood Cancers, the LLS podcast series for professionals. We will be joined by cancer experts to discuss blood cancer diagnosis, treatment, side effects management, and the importance of clinical trials. They will share their experience in treating patients and discuss strategies for optimal patient care. Let's get the conversation started. Welcome to Treating Blood Cancers, LLS podcast series for professionals. I'm Dr. Ken Miller. I'm a medical oncologist and an LLS volunteer, and I want to thank you all so much for joining us for this episode. Today, we'll be joined by Dr. Gail Robos. Gail Robos is the director of the Clinical and Translational Leukemia Program and a professor of medicine at the Weill Cornell School of Medicine at New York Presbyterian Hospital. She's a leading expert in developmental therapeutics and novel clinical trial design for acute leukemia, myelodysplastic syndrome, and myeloproliferative disorders. Dr. Robos is the principal investigator on numerous investigator-initiated cooperative group and industry-sponsored clinical trials in this area and has authored many of the very important manuscripts and abstracts in this field as well. Gail, thanks for joining us. Thank you so much for having me. Happy to be here. I want to say just a couple words as an oncologist for, it's been about 30 years, but it's been so exciting to see how much better an understanding we're getting on a molecular level, not only for solid tumors, for the leukemia and blood cancers as well. And we're able at least to have a better idea of what's driving cancers and what may be the targets of therapeutics. So it is a spinoff in some ways. And actually, let me get your insight into this, but it's also been fascinating to say, geez, can we detect a residual cancer? So let me ask you a little bit about just the history of how searching for MRD really started. Is that a reasonable kind of synopsis? Well, I think that in hematologic malignancies in general, and certainly for AML, for acute myeloid leukemia, which is obviously the most common acute leukemia in adults and a very devastating disease historically with extremely poor outcomes, especially in those patients most likely to get it, who are the older ones, median age of diagnosis in the late 60s. So we always knew clinically that you're looking at a patient, they get their treatment, they look good. They feel good. Their blood counts go to normal. The bone marrow biopsy looks good. You're down to that 5% residual blast. Everything seems okay. And then the disease comes back. So you didn't require a lot of PCR or next generation sequencing or even much rocket science as a clinician taking care of these patients to know that there were leftovers. CLL for years has been called incurable exactly for that reason, because there are leftovers, multiple myeloma, ALL, same story. You're looking at the patient, you think the disease is gone, everything that we can measure looks okay, and it comes back. So there was this disconnect between what the clinicians and the patients were seeing that okay, am I fine? Is the disease gone? Well, how come three months later out of nowhere it's back versus our ability to test? And looking under the microscope, while I think it brought many of us into HEMONC because it's a fascinating area, especially in hematological malignancies, we knew we were in the wrong century, right? We knew that looking under the microscope for blasts on a bone marrow aspirate was just not good enough because we were looking at the aspirate and thinking everything was okay, but the patient wasn't. So in that sense, the search for MRD was driven by what was happening in the clinic with patients relapsing when they were expected to be okay. 
Got it. So I wanted to ask you, I'm going to do a true or false, talking about MRD. Uh, true or false, MRD stands for minimal residual disease. So I love that, that you gave it as a true <laughs> or false. That's actually great. It's so perfect because it's true and false. So it used to be actually, and I can't say that you're wrong in calling it minimal residual disease. And that's certainly something that appears in lots of manuscripts and papers and in discussion. But actually, there's been a very significant movement to call MRD measurable residual disease. And part of the reason for that actually is because there's something blow offable about minimal. It just sounds like it's not important. It sounds like, oh, I did well. I've got only a minimal amount of disease left. Mm -hmm. And I think that as the field was emerging in significance clinically and the realization that with detectable, basically any detectable disease, whether it's by PCR, next generation sequencing, flow cytometry, minimal was blowing off something that was not minimal. There are patients who would have 0.1 or 0.2% detectable disease, which sounds like a small number, and yet would have very significant prognostic implications. So measurable is for two reasons. Measurable residual disease, first of all, because it covers a broad variety of measurement methods, and there are a broad variety in currently in use. And secondly, to get away from that notion that, ah, it's just a little bit, doesn't mean too much. Yeah. I don't know if I'm going to be able to ask this question the right way, but let me put it out there. How much more sensitive, you were talking about bone marrow aspirates. I remember, of course, and I still do, sitting in front of the microscope looking for signs of cancer. So how much more sensitive are other techniques, your other techniques, in detecting measurable disease? I mean, you're talking orders of magnitude. You're talking with certain PCRs and with next generation sequencing down to 10 to the minus six. Mm -hmm. I mean, if you look at the graphs of this, these are logarithmic orders of difference in sensitivity, literally down to 10 to the minus six. Now, here, though, I think your question is getting at a very, very central point, which is that okay, iPhones are better, iPads are better, computers are better, technology is better, detection of MRD is better, but what matters? So I will stipulate to it that there will be a technology or a technique that can find one in a gazillion, and that's a lot of zeros, leukemic cells. But the fundamental question is what's important. Just because you pick it up, so next generation sequencing or even MRI, MRI was used for a while because bone marrow biopsies are literally a pain in the butt. So we were trying to look at other ways to get disease assessments for patients using peripheral blood, using MRI. If you look at an MRI, you can say, aha, that looks like it's an abnormal cell. The question is, so what? So I think the very important starting point for thinking about MRD is the establishment of thresholds, not necessarily pushing the sensitivity of the test to the max. So it is not necessarily the case that having 10 to the minus six or 10 to the minus seventh is more important than 10 to the minus three, but having cutoffs for what's clinically important. And this is going to be not only across clinical trials, but but also in your own group and with your own pathologists. And this is where things get really hard because in the major academic centers and major leukemia groups, what we're all trying to do is say, okay, in my own shop, if I get down to 
10 to the minus 2, 10 to the minus 3 in flow cytometry. What matters? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Can I, am I saving someone's life better by detecting that or not? And I think we are now, I don't know if you wanted to go so quickly into the land of the difficult and unanswered questions, but the land of the difficult and unanswered questions in MRD is big. And it is true for all of the heme malignancies that just because you can pick up a cell, is it important? Does that mean I can save your life better as a patient if I'm doing something about that? That said, the problem is that the testing is not even being done for a lot of patients because in programs which may not be dealing only with acute leukemia, for example, ALL is rare. You could easily have a practice that might see one or two adult patients with ALL in a year. Do you even know as a doc who's treating 50 things, you've got colon cancer, you've got lung cancer, you've got a lot of stuff walking into your office, an ALL patient mm -hmm. walks in, you're looking at the guidelines, you're following the program. But do you even know to call the pathologist and say, what are you guys doing when I send you a bone marrow at an early time point, let's say a day 14 or post-induction or pre-transplant, what are you guys in your lab doing for MRD? Are you using flow? Is it 0.01%? Are you using PCR? Are you using NextGen? Most doctors, to be honest with you, who don't deal with this disease that much, aren't even asking the question as to whether MRD is being looked for. So by the way, I agree with you. And also, I think for the generalist or the community oncologist, we are trying to keep track of that in myeloma and CLL and an AML perhaps and ALL perhaps, and also probably one day in the solid tumors. So it is difficult. I want to ask you sort of a series of questions really as a follow-up and sort of the who, what's, why's, and where's a little bit. But then I really do want to go back to the difficult questions and more of the philosophy ones because they're fascinating. So along those lines, which of our patients with what illnesses should we be looking for MRD? This should be an uncontroversial question, but it isn't. I believe it is very clear that we should be looking for MRD in AML, ALL, CLL, and myeloma. What is not very clear is what to do with the information when you get it. And that, I think, is what makes it difficult for many docs to wrap their head around it that, well, wait a minute, if we're not even exactly sure what we're going to do with the results, why am I even looking for it? I would argue the following. From an individual risk stratification basis, it is definitely the case with all of these diseases that MRD detection by whatever modality is correlated with lower, ultimately, relapse-free survival, and in some cases, overall survival. So at the very least, it's going to make you ask a question, especially for patients who are on track for potentially curative therapy, that am I doing the absolutely best? Am I on track, as far as we know, as far as the latest research leads us, to a potential cure for this patient? Now, AML patients and ALL patients, of course, there are adults with those diseases who are potentially curable. And I would say that closely following the guidelines, and there are guidelines, the ELN had guidelines, but at the very least, you want to be asking the question and if you're not sure what to do with the answer, you know, you can call somebody who deals with AML all the time. I think it's completely impossible to master all of these things as a generalist, but it is complicated. And these are patients with potential cures. 
For example, I have an AML patient with a molecularly defined AML with an NPM1 mutation that there are data in the New England Journal and in the guidelines that following MRD matters if you know to look at it and then mm -hmm. give a call or give an email and say, hey, this is what's coming back. What do I do? I think that that actually really matters for patient outcomes in all four of these diseases in ALL, AML, CLL, and myeloma. And also, again, who, what, when, and why of testing for MRD, maybe not the why yet, but the methodology. You've mentioned flow, you've mentioned PCR, any other techniques that, again, we generalists and other people in our community should know about? So flow cytometry is applicable to almost everyone. Mm -hmm. It is relatively inexpensive. It is well worked out for myeloma, CLL, and ALL. Those are the quote-unquote easier diseases because the different from normal and the abnormal malignant clone is more easily distinguished by flow cytometry, and there are cutoffs. For example, we know that 0.01% in ALL is a very, very important cutoff. AML is a mess. It is not standardized. There is barely harmonization of protocols of which fluorochromes are used for AML. There's a lot of antigenic shift that can happen, for example, from the beginning of the disease to later in diagnosis. Not all labs know what they're doing. But basically, in flow cytometry, you're looking for either an LAIP or a leukemia-associated immunophenotype or something called the different from normal approach. This is where you've got to talk to your pathologist in AML about, okay, what are you guys doing in this lab for flow cytometry? What kind of threshold are you giving me? Are you even giving me, when I send you a bone marrow aspirate, are you giving me an MRD result? That is, so flow cytometry is for everybody. Mm -hmm. Now, the other methodologies depend on what the disease is. So for example, PCR requires a lesion that you can PCR for. So these are the molecularly defined diseases, APL, PMLRA-R-alpha, core binding factor, inversion 16, 821, NPM1 can be followed by PCR, and also, of course, BCR-ABLE in, in both AML and in ALL, when you have BCR-ABLE positive disease, you're following that by PCR. PCR is infinitely more sensitive than flow and should be followed for these diseases. Now, what if you don't only have an NPM1 mutation? What if you have 12 other mutations along with NPM1 that can't be followed by PCR? That happens often in AML. Right. We don't know yet. It depends on the field of other mutations. But the current thinking is that the NPM1 is the one to follow by PCR, not necessarily all of the others. If you're taking care of one of these four diseases, you can definitely get flow. Talk to your pathologist and figure out what the threshold is in the laboratory that you're working with for MRD. For molecularly defined patients, that is the ones that I've listed. And if you've got one of those, you've got to follow PCR. The third methodology takes us into sequencing. I do want to ask you, because I get, I do solid tumor oncology too. You know, with in-breast oncology, ER, PR, HER2 new, obviously they've been around quite a while now, but the methodologies have been pretty well refined. Why is it different in blood cancers? Are the diseases more complex? Is it that the field itself, the people in the field have not done that type of a consensus gathering? So I think there are some very specific 
reasons for that. If you look, for example, at ALL, CLL, and myeloma, in those diseases, the malignant cells really are readily distinguishable from the normal ones in a way that, again, AML, it's difficult because if you're post-chemotherapy and have a regrowing myeloid population, a lot of regrowing early stuff can look awfully difficult to distinguish from monoblastic or other forms of malignant cells. So it's complicated. If you look at myeloma, CLL, ALL, though, and think about the, your question of, well, why isn't this well worked out? It is actually well worked out. What hadn't been done yet was, again, these deep sequencing, so next generation sequencing technologies, plus also the PCR. The reason that it hadn't been standard, perhaps, to look for immunoglobulin chain receptor rearrangements over time or TCR receptor uh, rearrangements was that if you look at the proportion of patients that we were curing, it was incredibly low. So MRD becomes at its most important in a scenario where you are shooting for cure. Adult ALL has been historically incurable. If you look, for example, at pH positive ALL, right, that's a revolution. pH positive ALL was an absolutely deadly diagnosis. It was the worst, that's right. one of the worst forms of ALL. Now we're not even transplanting patients a lot of the time because the combination of tyrosine kinase inhibitors added to chemotherapy plus molecular monitoring of the disease allowed those cure rates to be driven forward. So I think the important thing that your question is getting at, breast cancer, you can cure patients with breast cancer. Here, though, the reason MRD is becoming so important is because we actually finally have some therapies that work. So it might be you're eradicating measurable disease, for example, maybe that means you don't need a stem cell transplant. Maybe it means mm -hmm. you don't mm -hmm. need an allogeneic stem cell transplant. In Italy, they have a very interesting trial in myeloid leukemia patients who become MRD negative using their ultrasensitive flow cytometry, that those patients, if they go on to an autologous transplant versus an allo, do just as well, and the auto is less risky. So the reason MRD is coming to the forefront now is because it's helping us understand who are curable populations. And what we really hope for the future is that we cannot over-treat people who might be okay, and that we can treat more or better those patients with residual disease. But I have to squeeze in one comment, which I guess you guys can, I don't know, somehow repeat this 20 times in the podcast. Okay. But the problem is MRD positivity doesn't absolutely definitely mean you're going to relapse, and MRD negativity doesn't absolutely definitely mean that you're going to be cured. And this is really hard for doctors and really hard for patients and especially true in AML. So that's why we have a lot that needs to be worked out because just because you're MRD positive and there are specific scenarios for this that I can go over, there are patients mm -hmm. who may live for a very long time with detectable disease and there are patients who might relapse quite quickly without it, which makes this whole thing a lot more complicated, both for patients and for docs. So let me ask you about the patient's perspective. Someone has, let's say, just been through a six-week induction, and you look for MRD, and you find it. So a two-part question. One is, when you're about to do that test, what do you tell the patient you're going to do and why? And then the second part is, for patients that are MRD positive after going through 
but typically is a very rough period of time in their lives. How do you present it to them? Very, very carefully is the answer to that, because I have to say that, look, I'm in New York. I treat many patients who are actually quite savvy about this, half the time more savvy than the fellows. They come in with 14 videos of mine and others that they've watched on MRD, and they know what they're looking for. And there is a lot of potential anxiety associated with these measurements, and there are some specific reasons why. So reason number one is that depending on what type of AML you're treating, the immediate post-induction point may in fact not be the optimal point to be looking. For example, NPM1 and core binding factors are not necessarily predicted to be MRD negative at that post-induction time point. And yet if they are molecularly decreasing over the subsequent one or two consolidations, that patient might be just as well cured as the person who's immediately MRD negative. So I definitely try to be um, very clear with patients, depending on their type of AML, the subtype, the molecular subtype of the disease, what I intend to do with the result. And then there are all kinds of misconceptions that make things hard. So for example, many patients are aware that, well, if you can detect, if you have detectable MRD, that means that outcomes, for example, after stem cell transplant may not be as good. Okay, but there's a lot to unpack in that statement. It is true that if you're doing an allogeneic stem cell transplant and you are going in with measurable disease, whether by cytogenetics, fish, flow cytometry, whatever method you want, the outcomes aren't as good as if that's all undetectable. However, that doesn't mean that you shouldn't get a transplant A, and it doesn't necessarily mean that additional therapy will definitely eradicate those leftovers and make you in better shape one cycle later. So that is something that on a very individual basis, we don't have broad guidelines for this, but on a very individual basis, there are decisions made. For example, if you've had a very, very big reduction in disease after induction, you're heading to an allo transplant, we do sometimes feel that that additional consolidation cycle will be important in reducing MRD to unmeasurable. If you think about AML paradigms, for example, in much of Europe, it is completely standard to do a double induction. Whereas in the United States, that's not standard. It's standard to do a seven and three type of regimen and then either not do an intermediate time point bone marrow biopsy at day 14 or 21. Or if you do one, only do a second induction if there is residual disease at the midpoint. But the problem is the MRD negativity rates are likely much lower after our standard US induction than after a double one in Europe. So this is why it becomes on a very individual basis, well, how much chemo did you get at the point when you're measuring residual disease? Did you already have seven and three plus one cycle of HIDAC or two cycles? What is the dosing? There are lots of unanswered questions that make this challenging, but this is why we're trying to study this in clinical 
clinical trials, but more importantly, trying to put together some broad data to help doctors manage this. So basically, if you're MRD positive after induction, that may mm -hmm. in fact lead you to want to do some post-remission therapy prior to a transplant. But even there, there are caveats that make it impossible for me to make a general statement that everybody with AML should get a consolidation cycle. We never say that because there are too many exceptions to the rule. Let me very briefly present a patient to you. I took care of a woman, still do, who's about 80 when I diagnosed her with CML. This is a long time ago. And what we had was interferon. So it, it dates this to probably the 1980s. She went on interferon. She clinically went into remissions. She then became essentially allergic to the interferon and we stopped. And I saw her several times a year. Her blood counts were good. Her cytogenetics were normal. I lost her to follow up for a number of years. The bottom line is with BCR able PCR testing, she was positive very minimally, probably for 15 or more years after her therapy stopped. So one thing is a patient like this, who's thankfully in her 90s now and, and doing quite well, the bottom line is, what does it tell us about the immune system, the presence of clones that don't change? What are the lessons we can learn there? So I think that, I mean, CML is biologically a different actor in many ways, but conceptually, one does wonder whether there is a level of disease that is just manageable or not by the immune system. And we don't mm -hmm. have any good way in clinical medicine currently for these acute leukemias to say, okay, you have X number of, I don't know, T cells, NK cells, however you want to package a measurement of immune competence, you're going to be okay. We don't know that number. There are patients, I totally agree with you, especially among older patients in their 80s and into their late 80s, who sometimes are simply just more smoldering by nature. They are less proliferative and they have measurable disease, but they manage to putter along. Is that the disease biology? Is that age? Is that the immune system? I don't know. I can definitely tell you that for the molecularly defined diseases, BCR-ABLE included, rising titers by PCR is generally not a good thing. What we don't right. know, and certainly for APL, that is a guaranteed relapse. What we don't know is, for example, in a core binding factor patient, we routinely monitor PCR transcripts for A21 and for inversion 16. But if I'm picking up a molecular relapse, can I definitely save that patient's life better if I treat right away at the time of a molecular relapse or if I wait? And that's where there's a little bit of uncertainty. For example, it's known that inversion 16 patients have a very, very high rate of salvage with chemotherapy. So one of the reasons why those patients typically are not transplanted in first remission is because a lot of them do just as well as if they got an allotransplant during first remission and you save the toxicity, but also those patients are salvaged very well. If I add on a hypomethylating agent for a core binding patient who's having a molecular relapse, and I have been known to do that. It feels mm -hmm. good because you're trying to eradicate um, residual disease that is rising, but the naysayers in the MRD field and AML will say, well, show me the clinical trial that proves that those patients' overall survival is better if you treated them in January than if you waited and the disease was going to relapse in, in whatever, April or June. And that's right. where 
We don't know. Most of us don't love getting hit by an oncoming train. So there's an impetus, there's a feeling to try to do something about it. But the flip side is that if the relapse is destined to happen anyway, again, one can argue that clinically, if you relapse with 100,000 blasts, aren't there likely to be clinical complications that maybe you could avoid by treating the disease at the time of molecular relapse? That's what we think. And that's what we hope is that the therapy that we might offer to a patient who is relapsing molecularly, but not overtly, maybe would mm-hmm. spare them for those you know bad clinical consequences that happen with overt disease. This is what's being used also. So So when you're talking about guiding therapy, the question is, well, what do we have to offer? So Mm -hmm. in AML, there's now a lot more to offer. Previously, I think, again, the naysayers were saying, well, you know, we don't have anything. I've got rocks and sticks to throw at it. So if it relapses or not, I've got RSC or I've got RSC plus something else. Now we have other agents. There are targeted agents. There are different approaches that make at least the possibility of having a more personalized approach to the nature of the relapse. Like if you have a patient, for example, who now is having a rising variant allele fraction of an IDH1 mutation, well, there's an IDH1 inhibitor. Maybe we throw that Mm -hmm. on, that's a well-tolerated drug. So it's not going to be possible to prove every single thing in a clinical trial. It just isn't. This Mm -hmm. is a rare disease. There aren't that many patients. It's That is the pure answer. And I could answer every single one of your points that, well, we need a clinical trial, but these are real life scenarios. These are patients. And we are somewhat operating on the fly that if we're detecting something that is going in the wrong direction and we think we have a tool to try to get rid of it, that is honestly what's being done clinically. And I think at least sending the tests and being able to at least have that discussion of what could I do or what might I do, I think is Mm -hmm. very important. And I think practitioners should be encouraged to have at least the conversations with their pathologist of, okay, what do you guys have on your menu? What could I get? What can I track in this patient? I got a patient with ALL. It's a B-cell ALL. What can you do for me? Can you do sequencing? Can you do PCR? What's on offer? And then I'll figure out, is this a curable patient where the with the absence of residual disease may be important? Or is this a 90-year-old patient where, honestly, it's nice to have something MRD negative, and I think it's interesting, and it certainly shows that some of our current less intensive therapies can actually make somebody MRD negative, but is that going to fundamentally change the management of the patient? Probably not. So I have to say anecdote, we're always taught to obviously use controlled trials, but anecdote, I think is very important to each one of us as clinicians. I'd love to hear about some of your patients where you're using this data and how you're using it to help navigate their care. Anyone come to mind? Well, I would say that on an individual basis, honestly, this is now an everyday thing. And again, I will get into I will get into trouble if people say, "Well, you didn't have data for that." Well, again, you don't have data for every single thing. Right. I can absolutely tell you there is an ALL patient I'm treating currently, for example, who really would have had, uh, this is a patient in her 50s, there would have been significant barriers on multiple different fronts to allogeneic stem cell transplant. 
50s is again in that gray zone of do we need a transplant? Maybe we can cure the patient without a transplant. Maybe we can't. It's a gray zone. There's mm. not absolutely resounding data for this particular patient with her particular ALL biology that a transplant is going to help. And yet ALL in this biology, there are a lot of relapses. So we decided, what can I do to make myself feel better about not going into a transplant? Well, we're using molecular monitoring. There is an FDA-approved sequencing-based, so amplicon-based sequencing test that is FDA-approved. It's actually FDA-approved for CLL as well. It's called ClonoSeq. This is something mm -hmm. that you can test. And it gives you, does it mean the fountain of youth? Does it mean that you're going to live forever? No. But it is a very, very sensitive test for MRD that while it is negative, is somewhat reassuring. And were it to turn positive, there are salvage therapies, for example, in ALL that are now FDA-approved, things like linatumumab, which mm -hmm. is a bite, a bispecific T-cell engager, which could be used to reduce or hopefully eliminate MRD. So we have in ALL, there are approved therapies. There are ways that we could reduce or eliminate MRD before taking a patient into transplant. Mm -hmm. And there are these sort of anecdotal and, and pre-experimental approaches of trying to avoid allotransplant, which has significant morbidity and mortality for patients who are MRD negative. I have a whole bunch of NPM1 mutated AML patients, some of whom came to me because they had been recommended for transplant and wanted additional opinions. And we are trying to stick with, there is a worldwide approach currently that if the MRD is going to undetectable or nearly undetectable after consolidation therapy to try not to transplant those patients. If the MRD is remaining positive, if it's hanging out, that usually is a sign that for eligible patients, we do want to do the transplant. And even there, the MRD can guide the transplant. There are data to suggest that if you do a, a reduced intensity transplant with a substantial MRD going into the transplant, it's not going to work. So maybe could you get that patient into a more myeloablative transplant? That mm -hmm. these are, I think these are day-to-day -day examples. And I would argue that for ALL, it is literally mandatory to have those post-induction, pre-transplant. I mean, those time points to have MRD assessment is absolutely essential. And the clinicians can't count on it that the pathologist receiving the specimen is going to know at what point in therapy that patient is. So it's not automatic. They don't automatically look. And furthermore, in ALL, not every lab is necessarily going to be reporting CD19. They usually do. But for example, CD22, mm -hmm. for which there is also a potential salvage therapy, inotuzumab, which is an antibody drug conjugate, if you're not even testing for things, you can't have the discussion. So I really think that the pathologist for all of these diseases needs to be on speed dial and the clinician has to kind of learn to ask the question, well, when I send you this, what are you doing? What am I getting back? And wait a minute, I'm sending you a post-induction ALL patient on a pediatric-inspired protocol where I'm trying to cure this patient without transplanting them. I read that you can cure a lot of these patients if you do an intensified PEDS protocol. Are you guys giving me MRD and what are you looking for? 
are you sending me a PCR? Do I need to send a separate test to get a clonoseq or sequencing-based MRD? I think that you don't necessarily have to know the answer, but you have to know to ask the question. And finally, Gail, I did want to check in with you about what's the future in terms of uh, MRD testing and caring for patients with blood cancers. I think there are some very, very critical differences between establishing what to do with MRD in your clinic with individual patients versus what's going to happen with clinical trials and surrogacy. We all get it that when we go to work in the morning and we go to clinic and we have patients in front of us, we got to make decisions, right? There's Mm -hmm. somebody sitting in front of you. You got to do something with the best available information. But at the same time, we also want clinical trials to be designed, prospective clinical trials to be designed to help us know what we're actually doing and how much of this testing is valuable and important for patient outcomes. So there is a strong push with both industry-sponsored IITs, all forms of clinical trials to include in all of these diseases that we've talked about, AML, ALL, myeloma, CLL, to include MRD, to include that testing. And actually, there have been a lot of studies done that show that this doesn't add enormously to the cost of the clinical trial. For example, Cornell is working with the Polish acute leukemia group, so it's the entire country of Poland plus Cornell, doing a prospective clinical trial right now in newly diagnosed AML, where we are sampling multiple time points and trying to do multimodality assessments, PCR, next generation sequencing, flow cytometry, to answer these questions in a prospective trial, which one matters, which one do we need to be doing? So I think the clinical trial aspect will also be very important because if it is true that like in ALL, we can identify therapies that are able to eradicate MRD and result in survival benefits, that gives us another endpoint to shoot for in AML clinical trials, not only overall survival or event-free survival, but if MRD negativity can be established as an endpoint that's important because it's a surrogate for overall survival, that may be something that allows faster drug approvals in AML. That is definitely the future from a clinical trials perspective. From an actual clinical perspective, my goals are more modest. First of all, don't blow off disease. Things Mm -hmm. like 0.1% in AML doesn't sound like a lot. 0.1% means that patient is in trouble. If they are picking up by flow cytometry 0.1%, you got to be on the phone with the pathologist and say, hey, wait a minute. And you've got to be thinking not, oh, I'm only at 0.1%. That's pretty good. You've got to be thinking 0.1%. I'm concerned. I either know what I'm doing or I'm going to call somebody, but I'm concerned. So that's basic point number one. Basic point number two is understand the molecular aspects of the disease that can be followed by PCR, whether it's immunoglobulin chain receptor rearrangements or whether it's a core binding factor, whether it's BCR-able. If you have a PCR-able lesion, follow it by PCR. And if you're in the land of lymphoid, CLL, ALL, know that 0.01%, know that threshold, make sure your pathologist is checking for it, consider doing the FDA-approved next-generation sequencing-based technology on top of it if you're talking about a curable patient and you're trying to decide what to do for transplant. 
And I think that for ALL in particular, which is such a deadly disease, there are FDA approved therapies that are going to be, you're going to want to have an MRD result before you think about those, or, you know, uh, you want to make sure that you have in your discussion with the patient, the availability of that result. So talk to the pathologist. And I think the immediate clinical future is going to be the application of, at the very least, those tools. And then the slightly more distant clinical future is if we organize flow cytometry and AML so that at least people would be getting some consistency back in their flow cytometry reports. I think that would be huge. And hopefully the new ELN guideline statement will offer pathology labs also the opportunity to come in line a little bit so the clinicians aren't left scrambling all the time, that if you send your results to lab A versus lab B, you get completely different results. Right. For so many years, the group of patients treated for AML who were not cured was and still is a big group of people. And essentially, we didn't have really a maintenance therapy. We didn't have a lot to offer to that group of patients. What you're saying, firstly, is really interesting, but also really encouraging that perhaps by understanding MRD, we can develop one or more or several strategies for that group of patients who typically are not going to be cured. Does that make sense? Absolutely. I mean, AML therapy, honestly, for decades and decades, we're not going anywhere. And in the last several years, things are better. They are not perfect. And I can tell you now there are many patients who might be on my inpatient service listening to this, wondering why all of this promise is not getting them out of their very difficult relapse disease. So there's plenty of work to be done but things are better. And novel agents, for example, venetoclax and hypomethylating agents are now the new standard of care for older patients. We haven't had an effective therapy for older patients ever. Now we are getting to that zone. We have a maintenance therapy approved. Maintenance has saved lives in ALL for decades, both in children and in adults. It never saved lives in AML. And now it's not curing people, but there is an overall uh, survival prolongation with an oral hypomethylating methylating agent called CC486. So mm-hmm. that is something that is offering us the possibility of making life longer, hopefully eventually um, curing more patients, because of course, as you said, we still aren't curing the majority of patients with AML, but we have better tools than the rocks and the sticks that I referred to earlier. I just want to reflect as an oncologist, in a sense of yay, hooray for LLS, for the work you do and your colleagues in in the leukemia field, and really for the patients. But hearing about all the progress is very exciting. It's an LLS meeting right now, and it would be very wrong of me to not end my part by begging people to participate in clinical trials, because the only reason that we're having this podcast and that I can talk about any of this is because of the patients who got onto these clinical trials and who pushed forward the drug approvals that we've seen in the last several years. So I don't want everybody to think that we're done and now we have all these choices and that we don't need clinical trials. Now we need them more than ever to answer these questions. Very good. Thank you. And I want to thank everyone. This is Dr. Ken Miller. Again, I am a medical oncologist, a hematologist, and a volunteer for the Leukemia and Lymphoma Society. It has been a wonderful session today with Dr. Gail Robos from the Weill Cornell School of Medicine. Gail, thank you so much. Thank you. Great to talk to you. And I'd like to thank all of you for listening to this informative podcast. 
For more information on blood cancers and resources to support your patients, including a fact sheet on measurable residual disease, please visit www.lls.org. You can access our healthcare professional continuing education activities and podcasts at www.lls.org forward slash CE. And for questions or to refer a patient or family to the LLS for support, please contact our Information Resource Center by calling 800-955-4572. Information specialists provide personalized one-on-one support, resources, and education for patients and families about their disease and treatment and to offer support for financial and psychosocial challenges. Our clinical nurse navigators, nurse trial navigators who are registered nurses with expertise in blood cancers work one-on-one with patients and caregivers via, via telephone to find an appropriate clinical trial, assist through the clinical trial process, and help patients develop questions to ask their own healthcare team. Finally, I encourage you to sign up to receive notification of future podcast episodes by subscribing at www.treatingbloodcancers.org. That's all one word, treatingbloodcancers.org. LLS also offers a a series of podcasts for patients and families at www.lls.org forward slash podcast. And we look forward to you joining us on future episodes. Thanks for listening to Treating Blood Cancers, the LLS podcast series for professionals. We can be found on iTunes and other podcatchers. You can subscribe at www.treatingbloodcancers.org and provide your suggestions for future topics. Visit our archive section on our website for other great podcasts. Be sure to rate and review us on iTunes. Keep up with LLS by following us on Twitter at LLSUSA and on Facebook at the Leukemia and Lymphoma Society and access our professional continuing education activities by visiting lls.org CE. Let's keep the conversation going. Until next time.